Hey, do you have an interesting story to tell about your life or your business and how you got into it? Maybe you know somebody who does, or maybe you've got an idea about a topic that might be interesting or funny to have a conversation about. Hey, if you do, shoot me an email to info at you don't say dot net. Again, that's info at you don't say dot net or post a comment on our Facebook page. We're at YDS Stories. Again, that's YDS Stories on Facebook. And hey, maybe I'll be talking to you soon. You know, aren't there enough things that cost an arm and a leg when you're running a business? There's really no reason you should be spending five grand or more for a website unless it's doing some pretty whiz-bang stuff. With Squarespace, you don't have to, even with some whiz-bang. With plans starting as low as 12 bucks a month for a personal website, Squarespace has a library of professionally designed templates to start from with easy-to-use tools that let you customize your site to fit your brand. So get that site going today. Just go to youdontsay.net, look for the Squarespace logo on the homepage, click on it, and when you check out, put in the code PARTNER10, again, that's PARTNER10, you'll save 10% off your first subscription on a website or a domain. And if you need help with your site, drop Left Brain Right Brain Marketing a call at lbrbm.com. Squarespace, it's the shortest, most cost-effective distance between here and success. Direct Mail. To a business owner, that only brings to mind big dollar signs and little return. Well, there's a better way to reach, stay in front of, and engage your customers, prospects, and cohorts. Constant contact, folks. Yep, I've used them for years for my businesses, and it works. And for pennies per contact as compared to direct mail. Subscriptions start at around 20 bucks a month. Constant Contact provides powerful email tools that include a library of awesome design templates, list management and reporting, event management, polls, and more. So, if you want to stay in front of your audience, Constant Contact has everything you need, and I'll make it easy for you. Simply go to constantcontact.com forward slash you don't say to start your free trial account today. This is Drew Zagorski. You're listening to You Don't Say. Thanks for that. And don't forget to rate, review, subscribe, and follow wherever you listen to podcasts or at youdontsay.net and share with your family, friends, and everyone else you know. This one's dedicated to my brothers Joe and Pete and to my ball-playing band of brothers Mo, Brian, Rocco, Greg, Tony, Pat, Larry, Joe, Al, and Billy, and all the others, and especially to the ones who walked off into the cornfield, Paul, Pat, Bowler, Marco, and my beautiful brother-in-law and cousins, Tim, Nancy, and Lee. 1977, my 12th summer on the planet. And what a summer it turned out to be, but don't take it from me. Take it from Harry Carey, the Hall of Fame announcer who was the color guy back then for the Chicago White Sox. Take it away, Harry.
If you're a regular listener, you'll know I grew up on the south side of Chicago in a neighborhood named Bridgeport. We lived walking distance from Comiskey Park. On warm summer nights, we could see the glow of the ballpark lights rising up behind the homes in the neighborhood. Then, whenever a Sox player would incite Harry's trademark, Way back! It could be! It might be! Holy cow! By crushing a ball into the outfield seats, the scoreboard would erupt with a fireworks display that seemed more like the sound of B-52s dropping their payload. It was awesome. We knew that whatever the score was, our guys just knocked one out of the park. I've always followed baseball to one degree or another. Some of my earliest memories are of Dick Allen in a Sox uniform in his MVP year. I was only seven that year, so those memories are fleeting and few, but wow, are they powerful. I love those red pinstripe home and sky blue road uniforms from those early 70 teams. Our summers were filled with baseball gloves and bats and buying packs of Topps baseball cards, always hoping you scored some Sox players, or maybe, hopefully, my pals and I, having mostly Polish roots, scoring a Karl Yastrzemski card, even though he was of the Crimson Sox persuasion. And we all loved going to Sox games. Our school awarded tickets to games for perfect attendance records. Now that was something to strive for. And then my friend Moe's mom had a friend who owned a hot dog shack across the street from a ballpark. She was friendly with the gate ushers, so if we went over there on game day, she'd bring us across the street after the first or second inning, and the ushers would let us in without tickets. Pretty cool deal. So, yeah, I loved the game back then. What boy or girl, right, Diane? You know who you are. What boy or girl at that point in their life and with that kind of access wouldn't fall in love with it? I'm sure there were some, but none of them were in my universe. But back to 1977. That year, the Sox, for the first time in my young life, were legitimate pennant contenders. I remember they even printed playoff tickets late in the season, which was front page of the sports section news. That team, known as the Southside Hitmen, was what really captured my imagination and got me hooked for life and deeply in love with the game. The Hitmen wore some of the most, well, for lack of a better term, interesting uniforms in the league. They were softball-style unis with pullover jerseys that weren't tucked in, and the previous year, in 1976, they even had a version with shorts. The uniforms were supposed to be a nod to a turn-of-the-century look in terms of the style and lettering in the collar, but I don't think I've ever seen a photo of a turn-of-the-century ball player with a softball-style jersey on. They always wore blousy but tucked-in flannels. Anyway, the two-time owner of the Sox, Bill Veck, a Hall of Famer himself as an executive, was always coming up with new gimmicks to bring people to the ballpark. Those 1976-81 uniforms were one of those gimmicks. In 1960, he created that exploding scoreboard, the first of its kind anywhere. During the 1975 season, he installed a shower in the center field bleachers, and he was instrumental in creating the notorious Disco Demolition Night in 1979. You can Google Disco Demolition 1979, and you'll see what I mean about notorious. If you're interested in Bill Veck, I've placed a link to a great book on him, Bill Veck, Baseball's Greatest Maverick by Paul Dixon. It's in the episode notes. Anyway, Veck was part of the magic formula that made me fall so deeply in love with the game. Now, this 1977 team could flat-out hit. All but one of the starting nine hit double-digit homers led by Oscar Gamble, Richie Zisk, and Eric Soderholm with 31, 30, and 25 dingers respectively. And Chet Lemon, who hit that one out in the audio clip I shared, he finished with 19. The team knocked out a combined 192 long balls, second most in the league with a collective 278 batting average. So yeah, they were a blast to watch in person especially in that beautiful old ballpark where Babe Ruth led the first American League All-Star team to a 4-2 win 
or on TV on Channel 44, one of the local UHF stations. Ultimately, though, the Sox finished in third place that year with a 90-72 and record, 12 games behind the Kansas City Royals, who pulled away with the division late in the season with 102 victories. That was tough to watch. The Royals ultimately lost to the Reggie Jackson-led New York Yankees, who won the World Series behind Jackson's MVP performance that included five homers and a four fifty batting average against the Dodgers in a classic six-game matchup. So, okay, there's a little bit of baseball history. Alongside all of this, I love the game at home, on the dining room table. That is to say, through dice baseball games. My oldest brother, Joe, who's also a baseball nerd and junkie like I am, was into that ahead of me, so he's probably most responsible for giving me the addiction. He owned a game called Stratomatic Baseball. At the age I was then, I never played it with him myself, but always liked to open that box and look at the player cards and the score sheets. He's eight years older than I am, so we were kind of in different generations within our family. When he was in his early and later teens, I was just a little too young to get it in terms of the dice games. I did come into it later, though. I'd picked up his strat game and figured that one out. Then, Joe created his own version of dice baseball with all fictional players and teams. That game was just flat-out brilliant and immersive, and whenever I had a chance to visit him, he was away at college at this point, then off to a career in life down in Texas, I'd want to play that game with him. So while Joe went off to create a life, I'd gotten turned on to another version of dice baseball called Status Pro Baseball, produced by a company called Avalon Hill. I also enjoyed one of their other games called Superstar Baseball, which offered all Hall of Famers. Both of those games were great fun, and I eventually bought my own Stratomatic set as well. I spent hours playing those games, maybe more than I should have since I was supposed to be studying. Then, when I was around 19 or so, like my brother before me, I created my own version of Dice Baseball. When I shared it with my brother in 1991, he gave me one of the best compliments I've ever gotten because I'd love that game he created so much. Joe told me my version was better than his. I played that homemade game of mine for several years, then put it aside as my wife and I started our family. And all the while I wasn't rolling dice, I was a huge baseball fan. It's the sport I most love, but I'm getting ahead of myself. Let's go back in time. With every good love story comes some bumps in the road. In 1981, Major League Baseball went on strike. This was the first strike that I really had a focus on. It kind of pissed me off. The players walked out in the middle of June, and the strike lasted until August 9th. When they finally came back, being baseball-deprived, all sins were forgiven, and baseball pretty much pulled me back in with how they handled that postseason. They split it in two, so there were first-half division winners who would be in the playoffs versus second-half division winners. It was a novel way to handle it, and it made the postseason pretty interesting because it included the Billy Ball Oakland A's, led by legendary baseball manager Billy Martin, and the L.A. Dodgers behind some great pitching from rookie phenom Fernando Valenzuela. And those Dodgers would ultimately take the series over the Yankees. So it was a fun ending to what felt like a betrayal at first. My baseball romance moved ahead. In 1983, I was assigned to read The Natural, Bernard Malamud's classic baseball novel, which led to the 84 film starring Robert Redford. That was the first book I ever read in a single sitting. It was fantastic. And the film, though it feels pretty 80-ish now, at least in terms of the musical score, was pretty good too. Fuel to the fire in terms of my love of the game. And meanwhile, I continued to roll the dice playing Stratomatic, Status Pro, and Superstar Baseball, as well as working on perfecting my own game. 
Around 1983 is also when I bought my first baseball encyclopedia, that five-pound-ish, four-inch thick tome with the records of everyone who ever played the game. I purchased two or three editions of the book throughout my life and poured over it time and again, getting lost in the numbers and the history. I'm finding myself these days doing the same thing with BaseballReference.com, which, as you can imagine, is a little bit lighter and easier to hold. But more relationship problems were on the way. The players also went on strike in 85 and 90, and while no games were canceled, it began to sour me on the game, and I started thinking to myself, if they do this again, I'm out. Getting your message out there is important. That's no secret. But how to do it in a way that presents your brand in a unique, engaging way, that's a little bit trickier. Left Brain, Right Brain Marketing focuses on the needs of smaller businesses and delivers everything you need to build a great brand. From web and graphic design to copywriting to developing podcasts that help you tell your story and position you as an influencer in your space. If you're ready to get your message out there the right way, give us a call at 503 961 3647. Again, that's 503-961-3647, or check us out online at lbrbm.com. Also around this time, I found another classic, one that was about my hometown White Sox, Eight Men Out, Elliot Asinov's history of the 1919 White Sox and their throwing of the World Series, another book I was up all night with. And the 1988 film did a pretty fair job at telling the story as well. In 1989, a film came out based on the 1980 book entitled Shoeless Joe by W.P. Kinsella. The film was called Field of Dreams. To this day, I believe it's one of the best, if not the best, baseball films of all time. At their heart, the book and film are a love story. A father's love, a son's love, and a love of the game and how it weaves itself into the fabric of our lives and personal histories, creating such rich memories. The story is one of those that, if you have a heart at all, you'll be misting up at the very least at the end. And I'm not just talking about baseball fans. By 1989, I've not really played Status Pro, Superstar, or Stratomatic in years. I was into my own version of the game, ever tinkering with the rules and gameplay. Talk about a passion project. Okay, so that gets us back to 1991 and that beautiful ballpark, Comiskey. It was slated for the wrecking ball. My brother, mom, and I were at the last night game. I don't remember the score, but I do remember how they turned the lights out. In the later innings of the game, we noticed, and so did everyone else around us, that the lights seemed to be dimming a little bit here and there. Then they went out, and that 80s-ish theme from The Natural began playing. Now, if you've seen the film, you recall the scene where Roy Hobbs hits a ball up into the lights. That's how they played this. The lights began to explode in perfect time with the musical score. When it was over... The crowd joined arms and began swaying and singing the Sox Homer chant in a hushed and reverent tone. Na, 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 hey, hey, goodbye. It was eerie, goosebumps eerie, and I still get goosebumps when I think of it. And of course, there wasn't a dry eye in the house. One of those thick memories that baseball has a habit of gifting you if you love it. And that ballpark certainly gave me dozens of them. But you know what? The new park has given me some great memories, too. In the inaugural season, my brother Pete scored a couple of tickets to a game and invited me. They were nosebleed seats, but that didn't matter, and I couldn't even tell you the score. But during that game, I realized for the first time what a great guy Pete was. Growing up, we'd always had an adversarial relationship. How could you not when you have to wear hand-me-down underwear? I'll let that sit for a second. 
So, of course, like a lot of brothers, we often came to blows. But during that game, in that moment, that's the exact point in my life when Pete became not just my brother, but one of my best friends. Baseball. This is what it does to you. It reminds us of what's good and what could be. So again, it was also in 1991 that I shared my dice game with my brother Joe after I'd moved to Texas and lived just a few minutes away from him. Baseball nerds unite. Of course, I was still an avid follower of the real game. Then, 1994. Strike. Major League Baseball called off the season and canceled the postseason, and that strike went all the way into 1995. Enough. I was out. Done. No more Major League Baseball for me. I was strictly into my fictionalized dice version. At least they'd never go on strike. Well, baseball eventually settled its labor dispute, and the 95 season started a few weeks later than usual. Maybe learning from that 1981 mess that resulted in expanded playoffs, 1995 would be the first year that Major League Baseball would offer just that, going forward. So that was kind of an interesting thing, but only kind of. Not enough to get me back. And then September 6, 1995 happened. Lou Gehrig, the Iron Horse, long since passed away, still held the record for consecutive games. Gehrig was all class, and just what you'd want a ball player to be. On September 6, 1995, another guy stepped onto the field to break Lou Gehrig's record. It was too compelling for me to not watch. I had to tune in. That guy was Cal Ripken Jr., who was a modern version of Gehrig in terms of his class, professional approach to the game, and how he played it. So I tuned in that night, and watching him break the record... I got kind of choked up. Baseball had me back. Around that time, I'd also stopped playing my version of dice baseball. My family was growing. Two beautiful girls now had my attention. While I'd still follow the real game, there were other things that took priority. In 2005, the White Sox had a fantastic year and were fun to watch whenever I could sneak in an inning or two, provided they were televised out here on the West Coast. They stormed through the playoffs and into the World Series for the first time since 1959, but this time, they won. I was watching upstairs, tensed up with every pitch in our bedroom. I guess that last game must have been on downstairs, because after the last pitch and my socks won it all for the first time in my life, as the tears just came in a flood, my girls rumbled up the stairs and into the room. We knew it, they both shouted laughing. We knew you'd be crying. I guess there was no hiding my affair with the game and my love for the Sox from them. So the years rolled by. I've occasionally peeked in on it, but I wasn't into the game to the level I was as a younger single guy. I guess that's just how it goes. My Sox have made a couple of runs during that stretch of time, but never got back to the World Series. But the way they're going this year, maybe the Sox will rise again. Certainly they got my attention. And then earlier this year, I was thinking about those dice games. I still have a copy of the one I created, but that's not the one I'm thinking about. It was Stratomatic because that one was so realistic in terms of the player performance. Surely that game, a dice and card game, isn't being made anymore in a world of joysticks, I thought. So I went to eBay to see if there was a set out there that I could buy. Well, there was. But you know what? It was a set containing a recent season. Holy crap! Straight away, I googled Stratomatic, and lo and behold, the game's still being published and in its 60th season. Of course, they have a computer version, but that's not what I wanted. I wanted the dice, the cards, the feeling of filling out a lineup on paper and playing a game where in my mind I could hear Nancy Faust on the Comiskey Park organ playing na-na-na-na, and the sound and the spectacle of the scoreboard erupting while Harry Carey and Jimmy Pearsall called the game. No computer could ever duplicate that. 
I had to have it. So a few weeks later, my copy arrived with two of their Diamond Gem sets. The 1970s B set, which includes the 71 Clemente Lead Pirates and the Big Red Machine Cincinnati Reds of 1975. And the 80s A set, which includes both the 1983 Winning Ugly White Sox and the 84 Cubs. Since the game arrived in the spring, I've embarked on a 28-game season with these 16 teams from my childhood. Immersive? Nah, I wouldn't say so. Addictive is more like it. Like crack. I've gone all in and spend my weekend mornings and the occasional lunch hour playing game after game, then tallying the stats as well. It's been a rebirth of my love of the game, and it doesn't hurt that my Chicago White Sox of the present day are on an epic playoff run. Baseball came back, and it whispered sweet nothings in my ear and reminded me what a beautiful thing it is. A couple weeks back, Major League Baseball hosted the first Field of Dreams game. They built a beautiful little ballpark about 100 yards away from the set of the 1989 movie. And who did they pick to play in that game? The White Sox and the Yankees. I couldn't miss it. My wife even got into it, which has happened never. And what a game it was. Kevin Costner, who starred in the film, narrated the opening and led the players in their vintage uniforms out of the cornfield and onto the outfield grass. Goosebumps. And yeah, I did get misty. It was a beautiful night and a fantastic venue, and it didn't hurt that the Sox won on a walk-off homer. How does baseball keep doing this to me, stealing my heart and my imagination? Well, since that game, my Stratomatic card sets for Negro League Stars, Negro League Diamond Gems, a set of eight classic Negro League teams, the Heroes 1, 2, and 3 sets, and the Hall of Fame sets have arrived. I was like that little kid in the drugstore on the corner buying that wax pack of Topps cards, looking forward to opening it up to see who I got. And as I was doing it, it was something more. It was like watching all of those players represented on the cards walk out of that cornfield. It was a feeling that spanned my entire life and includes all those friends and games and times that come back to me like they happened yesterday. A feeling that's brought me back, in the words of Terrence Mann, one of the main characters in Field of Dreams, into the magic waters, thick with memories. Now, I wish those were my words, but they certainly are my feelings. Feelings that Stratomatic and this beautiful game have reignited in me. Well, Terrence says it perfectly. In the walk out to the bleachers and sit in shirt sleeves on a perfect afternoon, they'll find they have reserved seats somewhere along one of the baselines where they sat when they were children and cheered for their heroes. And they'll watch the game. And it'll be as if they dipped themselves in magic waters. The memories will be so thick they'll have to brush them away from their faces. People will come, Ray. The one constant through all the years, Ray, has been baseball. America's rolled by like an army of steamrollers. It's been erased like a blackboard, Rebuilt and erased again, but baseball has marked the time. This field, this game, it's a part of our past, Ray. It reminds us of all that was once good and could be again. Oh, people will come, Ray. People will most definitely come. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review You Don't Say wherever you listen to podcasts and share with your family and friends. I welcome your feedback on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at YDS Stories and LinkedIn at Drew Zagorski. That's me. I'm Drew Zagorski. Thanks for listening to You Don't Say and get out to the ballpark. Peace. 
Thanks for listening. If you have a story to tell, shoot me an email to info at youdontsay.net. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at YDS Stories. Thanks again, and see you on the next episode.